Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have a powerful episode for you this week. Brian Loritz joins me, and I really have to tell you that as a white pastor who has pastored predominantly white churches, this conversation with Brian really made me think. Brian is the lead pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Silicon Valley and a graduate of Talbot School of Theology. He was recently named one of the top 30 emerging Christian leaders. Brian is the president of the Akinos Movement, which really focuses on establishing the multi-ethnic church in America as the new normal. He has authored several books, including his latest, which is entitled Insider Outsider. On this week's episode, Brian and I talk about racial division and how we as ministry leaders often do not even recognize what it is we're not recognizing. It's a fascinating conversation. We talk about the importance of awareness and making space so that we can move toward living life together in unity and fellowship. I'm excited to hear how God uses this episode in your ministry, and this is one that you'll want to share with your ministry leaders. So let's not waste any more time. Please join me in my conversation with Brian Lourdes. Brian, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It is so good to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jason. Looking forward to our time together. Yeah, me as well, Brian. Now, as pastors and ministry leaders, we recognize that there continues to exist uh, really a division in the church when it comes to race and ethnicity. And this is in no way a new reality for us, right? It's existed here in the U.S. for centuries. It's, it's existed through the missions movements. Um, you know, this has been a reality as well around the world for centuries. And uh, Brian, what I really appreciate about how you engage this topic is that you you really move much more deeply and sort of the common surface level buzzwords that we so often associate with these sorts of discussions, such as, you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic, and, and, and just kind of those surface level conversations. But you drive down into really the very movement of church and ministry, evangelicalism, and, and help us to see how our understanding of evangelicalism is nuanced or, or biased. And, and specifically, uh, you draw our attention to white evangelicalism and really kind of its impact on what it truly means for us to follow Jesus to to really embrace his teachings. Now, you have some fantastic um, sort of like images to help all of us better understand. And one of those that you use in your latest book, Insider Outsider, is when you talk about language and accents. So to help us as we launch into this conversation today, can you talk to us a bit about accents and in language when it comes to how we view this kind of topic? Yeah, I think that's a great way to start out, Jason. So uh, let me just begin with the point that I'm making, and then I'll move to the analogy. The point that I'm making is I think any good, what we would call in academia, hermeneutics professor, which is just simply the science and art of how to study the Bible or interpret the Bible, any good professor in that field will tell you it's impossible for us to approach the text, do hermeneutics, study the Bible, completely divested of our own biases and presuppositions, 
um, we just bring all that to the text. So, um, for example, a part of that is we bring our worldview, which is heavily ethnically informed. So as a black man, um, I just I just naturally, my blackness uh, illumines things, and at times it blinds me from things. So, you know, the fact that Moses married a black woman, man, I perk up at that. Or the fact that Jesus... Uh, was an immigrant, and he hid out in Egypt, which last I checked is in Africa. I noticed that, or I noticed the racism that uh, Daniel experiences in Daniel chapter 6, as he's just matriculating up the corporate ladder there in Persia, and he's like this only Jew who's risen up the ranks so high, and his Gentile um, colleagues, they've got a problem with that. So I noticed those things. But as an American, living in a highly individualized society, I am really disconnected from many of the communal uh, kind of emphases that the Bible has, because it was written really in an Eastern culture, which is far more uh, communal than we hear. So that's just kind of a a long way for me to say, I I just bring my biases to the text, and sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're harmful. And I liken it to the fact that we all have an accent. All of us do. Um, there is a way in which we speak. Now, the problem is, living in America, as an American, I don't see myself as having an accent. But I've got one. I was in the store. One of the, one of the analogies I use in the in, in the opening part of the book is, I talk about being in a store and hearing this woman. She was definitely Asian. She sounded Vietnamese to me. And she's talking in kind of slow, labored, broken English. I'm in a rush trying to talk to someone, but I'm right behind her. I'm wishing she'd hurry up. And I just made all kinds of presuppositions about her because of her accent. But on the other hand, if I were to go to her home country, let's say for the sake of argument it was Vietnam, uh, she would be on the other foot. And she right. would, I would, I would be looking as if, you know, I'm maybe not intelligent or I'm slow or whatever. And what I'm trying to point out here is accents, tend to be judged by the home team. We all have an accent. That's number one. And we don't think of ourselves as having an accent when we're the home team. And so it is with how we approach the Bible. We all have theological accents. There's presuppositions. There's things that we have. But the problem with white evangelicalism is not that it has an accent, it fails to see its accent because it has always been the home team here in America. That's what I'm trying to illumine, Jason, in the book. Yeah, that's that's fascinating um, because obviously you say because it has been the home team, or you know, it has been the the the, the strain or the stream rather that's been in power. So it's normal. Um, or it feels normal. It feels like everyone else has an accent somewhere else. They have their own nuances, right? But really kind of what's normal is what we see as white evangelicalism. Now, talk to us a little – I mean, I I think we can probably see the danger in that, but talk to us a little bit about what that danger really is for us. Okay, so I I think here's a a good example – to illumine um, the accent that white evangelicalism carries. And, you know, the very title of the book, Insider Outsider, it's, it's my narrative of being one who has spent a lot of time inside white evangelicalism 
And yet, because of my ethnicity and my worldview, I felt like an outsider. So if you take, for example, how we handle uh, pastors, ministers, uh, vocational Christian leaders who have sinned, right? Mm-hmm. And, and let's take some form of immorality. I never, coming from my black church, heard the phrase disqualified for ministry until I began to run in white evangelicalism and its circles. Now, minority communities, and especially the African-American community, we are far more redemptive in how we handle people, and specifically our leaders who have fallen into sin. And so our first default has always been, as African-Americans in the church world, is how can we redeem this? How can we restore this? How can we save this? Because, again, um, that's just how we see things. And the black church was birthed out of rejection. Because the white church failed to be the church, we ended up with the black church. That's a whole other message for another time. And so because we were birthed out of rejection, there's this thing in the African-American church's mindset is we are all we have And we are very careful in trying to throw people out on the street. So if one of our leaders has a moral failure, we want to work to redeem. Now, unfortunately, there's some disadvantages to that. Unfortunately, we can gloss over any form of discipline. But I think there's something to be learned there as far as us being a redemptive community. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but by and large, white evangelicalism can learn a lot from African Americans and our redemptive posture because historically, white evangelicalism, if you mess up, throw you out on the street, you're disqualified for ministry, you sell insurance, you do something else for the rest of your life. Not to say that's not a noble occupation, but you get what I mean. Right. So that's what I'm getting at here. It just that slight thing, and there's a hundred or more of those examples that just talks about the disparity there. That, that's, that's very fascinating. Now, you discuss uh, theological entitlement that accompanies white evangelicalism. What what do you mean about that entitlement? Well, it's linked to what sociologists say call white privilege. Now, I want to be careful with the term privilege. One of the things I say in the book, which is kind of unpopular, especially among minority communities, I don't think privilege in and of itself is the problem. I think the poor stewardship of privilege is the problem. Uh, after all, Jesus was the most privileged individual to have ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, he was God in the flesh. It doesn't get more privileged than that. But Philippians chapter 2, the great kenosis passage, we, we see Jesus stewarding or leveraging his privilege well for the benefit of others. So I just, I refuse to demonize anyone with privilege. I do think people need to be called out on their poor stewardship of it. But because historically, and again, I know I'm painting with a broad brush, historically, because white people in America have always been the home team, Uh, have never had to collectively and systemically and corporately endure suffering. Please notice those adjectives that I'm using there. It it pretty much, it's, it's sort of like raising a child who has all these advantages, and they've never had to struggle. They don't have to do any chores. They they don't have to work. Um, They've got, they've got access to all the stuff. Of course that child is going to be entitled. And the way that it shows itself, Jason, is anytime you want to hint at 
systemic, structural injustices that would levy a verdict of guilty or culpable upon white people, they bristle at that. This is a point that two white sociologists, um, Emerson and Smith, point out in their historic work, Divided by Faith, so that the white evangelical narrative towards injustice has always been, it exists, but it's more, it's more personal. It's never systemic. It's never structural. And I think that is where the entitlement happens. Now, on a very personal level, whenever I, whenever over the years I have preached against injustice and preached against racism, I've never once had a black person walk out on me. The people <laughs> who have walked out mid-sermon have always been white people. That speaks to the entitlement. So let's dig in there a little more. That entitlement mentality, obviously white Christians and white pastors, white ministers, probably do not feel, you know, overjoyed or the fact that um, there's this consideration of of um, entitlement there. How do you kind of walk pastors, ministry leaders, and even parishioners kind of through this idea that you're not just trying to—you're not slinging rocks, you know what I mean? You're trying to talk about this underlying issue that's just not being recognized. How can you help us kind of not just turn you off right away? You know, whenever we hear—like you said, it's the the white people who are walking out of, of the sermon whenever we're talking about injustices and those types of things. So how, how do we navigate that? Because I think that's one of the things that we struggle with right now, very divisive— on many fronts, um, not just racially, but very divisive. And people tend to kind of just shut other people down if they don't agree with them. So how can we, you know, begin to have these conversations and these dialogues in a meaningful way um, without, you know, just shutting someone down? Yeah, but see, I think your very question makes the point about entitlement. Because what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, Jason, is— uh-huh is how can I address this issue so that it it placates the feelings of our white brothers and sisters so that they don't get their feelings hurt? I'm I'm not really um, talking about worrying about people's feelings getting hurt. I guess I'm, I'm trying to say in the divisive world in which we live, oftentimes dialogue doesn't even get a chance to happen because people shut people down too quickly. So... How can we, as pastors and ministry leaders, how can we be you know, responsible in helping people come to the table and to have these conversations? Are there some practical things that we can do to kind of encourage these types of conversations? Yeah, I would, I would say part of the disconnect is, is that our white siblings do not cognitively see themselves as being white. And this is a point that a, that a white sociologist named Robin DiAngelo uh, excavates in one of her books. And it was incredibly helpful for me. Um, and again, she's white, and she just points out that, um, that our white friends see themselves more as a collection of individuals and not as a group in solidarity. And I actually think that's that's harmful. So minority communities more so have a communal solidarity mindset. So, you know, 
if it's Philando Castile or Alton Sterling or Michael Brown, whoever it is, uh, African-American who gets shot, Laquan McDonald, by a white police officer, you need to know black people in solidarity, even if the event happened in Chicago, the black person in Rochester, New York, those people are going to go to church on Sunday lamenting and grieving. So I actually think, and it sounds a little crazy, I think the most help, one of the more helpful things our white brothers and sisters can do is to take a step into something called awareness and just flip a switch and to say, I'm a white person, and to embrace that. Uh, I wrote an article not too long ago called White is Not a Four-Letter Word, uh, where I just press against this notion of making fun of white for sport. Um, ethnicity is not a fruit of the fall. And along with being white, there there comes some things. Now, the, the next thing I think our white brothers and sisters need to see is, is that this world, and especially America, bears the fingerprints of whiteness, which means we are being culturally um, formed into a white way of seeing things. So, for example, you know, Robin D'Angelo points out that the 10 richest Americans are 100% white. U.S. Congress, as of right now, is 90% white. Our governors are 96% white. Our top military advisors are 100% white. The U.S. House Freedom Caucus, 99% white. Our current U.S. presidential cabinet, 91% white. People who decide what TV shows we see, 93% white. People who decide which books we read, 90% white. People who decide which news is covered, 85% white. People who decide which music is produced, 95% white. People who direct the top 100 grossing films of all time, worldwide, 95% white. Full-time college professors, 84% white. Teachers, 82% white. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I mean, right. these are real-time stats as of 2017. So the first step is awareness. And wow. I mean, when you, when you hear these things, we are th – this world is just – America is just naturally slanted in a white direction. And, of course, you're going to see things – through this white lens, but this has profound implications on minorities. And until we can get our white siblings to open their eyes and to see it, we have no hope of navigating it well. That's good. So, so awareness is a key factor. And and uh, what I love about that, Brian, is um, is that it, it kind of goes back to that idea that we have an accent, but we don't recognize we have an accent, right? So it's right. it's this idea that all these because those stats that you just wrote off to me, I don't know those stats. You know what I mean? And as you're reading one after another after another, I'm thinking, wow, that's that's pretty profound. You're right. I mean, it's it's definitely what is just the norm in, in our culture, our society right now. So the awareness is is a key point. What are some ways, and can you talk to us maybe a little bit about, to borrow Bonhoeffer's expression, life together, right? What does the idea of Christian unity and fellowship really look like? Because I think that's uh, you know, where we need to be moving and this awareness kind of opens up our eyes and gives us the opportunity to see, hey, how can we move and step into this unity, this fellowship? So what does that kind of look like? First of all, there's got to be truth. You know, first John, John gives us a powerful concept, not just in, in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with one another. In first John chapter one, where he just talks about, listen, if, if our relationship with God is going to work, at the deepest level, there has to be a commitment to walking in the light. Mm. 
and so John says, if, if I walk in the light, we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I mean, that's just what it is. I, I've, I've been helping them. There's a couple at our church just, I mean, I, I don't think they're going to make it. And a pro, part of the reason why they're not going to make it is one of the spouses has just been walking in darkness mm. and profound deceit, not dealing with the issues, uh, covering up. You just can't have relationship that way. I mean, the re, I tell my kids all the time, the reason why I get so angry when it comes to lying is the same reason why God gets so angry, why he calls lying an abomination. You cannot have a relationship with someone who's a liar. I, I can't be in relationship with someone unless there's a mutual commitment to walk in the light. So when we take this this um, meta principle and we apply it, not just relationships in general, but especially in crossing the racial divide, you and I cannot have a relationship until I'm able to bring all of me into the light. And a part of what that means is the ethnic me. If I can't talk to you about the hurts that I've had, if, if, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be handcuffed by your sensitivity, I just can't have a relationship. I mean, it, it just think if, it's almost impossible to have a relationship with a person who's just easily offended all the time. Right. Now you're walking on eggshells. So on the one hand, what I need from minorities is to understand Ephesians 6, and that is we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So white people aren't the enemy. And so we've got to, we, we've got to come in this believing the best. What I need on the other side of the table is for our white brothers and sisters to have a little bit more resolve and to maybe hear some things you don't want to hear, but you need to hear if we're going to have an authentic relationship with one another. So there's, there's got to be a commitment to just blatant truth-telling. Without that, there can't be any sense of wholeness. That's good. Now, what, what does that look like, Brian, to kind of just drill down a little bit? What, what would that look like in maybe like a local church context? If, if a pastor is, you know, really focused in on this idea of life together, what are some do's or don'ts that you might suggest to them as they're trying to navigate this themselves? Number one, I would say create a space for people to lament. Mm. So you just need to understand, Sung Chan Ra deals with this in his great book, Prophetic Lament, in which he just talks about that over 95% of our worship music is triumphalistic. He's conquered the grave. He's overcome, so on and so forth. And it's all, it's all incredibly theologically rich and true. But less than 5% is lament, which means we are hardwiring a culture of Christians who don't know, to borrow a phrase from the book of Job, how to sit in the ashes with one another. Uh, Job's friends were at their finest the first seven days when they just sat and said nothing. And so when something ethnically traumatic happens in our nation, um, our white pastors need to know that minorities are coming to your church, crossing their fingers, saying, please say something, please say something, please say something, please say something. And it doesn't mean you have to change your sermon. I think having a prayer time. Mm. Uh, I think I think doing something that creates an outlet to lament and sitting with us in that pain, even if it's for three to five minutes in the worship experience, it communicates profoundly, you matter. And when there's a space to lament, now we can authentically do life together. That's good. One, one of the things that, um, that you've shared is that don't 
rush to preach on race or race issues, but rather preach on the gospel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, it's advice I always give to new church planters who, in a good way, are just saying, hey, I, I really want to go after a multi-ethnic church or an existing church where they've got a new pastor who's looking to transition it. And my advice is always, hey, man, I, I, I think you've got to build trust that your congregation listens to you preach and goes, this person knows how to rightly divide the Word of God. But... That's where I love expository preaching, where you're preaching through books, mm-hmm. because inevitably you'll land on topics like this. So if you're preaching through Ephesians, I mean, you get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22, and <laughs> Paul is talking about the dividing wall of hostility being dismantled. You're just going through the book of Ephesians, and boom, you have a God-ordained excuse to talk about race because the Bible talks about it. And so... When I talk about not when I talk about preaching the gospel first, I'm also careful to say that if you preach it in a robust way, which is how the Bible presents it, people will see that issues of ethnic reconciliation are actually connected to the gospel. Right. You know what I'm saying. So right. now that I talk about being reconciled vertically to God through Christ, the Bible knows nothing of a vertical reconciliation that is not seen in a robust horizontal reconciliation. And a part of what that means is I'm reconciled with people who are part of the ethnic other. Yeah, that's good. And that kind of um, leads into another conversation that you have in the book, and I think it's excellent uh, the way that you kind of parse this, and that is uh, the idea of the social gospel and um, how the church was kind of divided on on, on this issue and how the church is kind of— looks one to the other and and sometimes this idea of social gospel is is kind of used in derogatory term and yet the social gospel really speaks into the heart of uh, Jesus teachings and and our understandings of Jesus. Can you talk a little bit about um the social gospel and and how that impacts some of these um you know divisions when it comes to ethnicities or or even uh, racial reconciliation those types of things? Yeah, you know, unfor- yeah, I, I, I think y- your question is, it's a great one, and it really loops back into what we were talking about before, issues of privilege and entitlement. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very relevant question, Jason, especially in light of this statement that John MacArthur and crew have really propagated, uh, in which they're, they're coming against it. And I think two things. Number one, I think it's an overreaction to the politicalization of the term. Mm-hmm. So that the, 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 the idea of social gospel, social justice, has been hijacked by our friends on the left, just like evangelical has been politicized as well. Right. Um, and so I want to be careful not to overreact to what, what, at its core, is a caricature of what is a very biblical concept. I also think it relates to entitlement, because if you are white— middle to upper middle class, chances are you haven't had to deal with issues of systemic injustice. So, of course, you're going to sign a statement like that. (laughs) But when you represent a demographic who has been historically oppressed and sinned against, you want some social gospel. Now, so let's put the uh, the politicalization uh, thing aside. If by social you mean relational, 
is the gospel social? Absolutely. Right. The, the, the gospel knows nothing that is not profoundly relational. First of all, it's our relationship with God. It's what Paul tells the Corinthians. It's of first importance, the fact that I've been made whole with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That relationship now is on track. But it's also horizontal. I mean, just over a hundred times in the New Testament, the phrase one another is used. Love one another, encourage one another, serve one another. So just like we would say an unforgiving Christian, Christian who holds a grudge, is an oxymoron, we would also say a racist Christian is right. an oxymoron. Right. You know, so when John talks about how can I claim to love God whom I don't see but hate my brother whom I do see, and the Jewish concept of hate, according to uh, Ray Vanderlyn, is indifference, it is separation. So how can I be cut off and not be reconciled to a brother? That's an affront to the gospel. Or when, when Paul calls out Peter for withdrawing from Gentiles and eating with, with the Judaizers in Galatians chapter 2, he says this relational sin, you know what he calls it? Being out of step with the gospel. Mm-hmm. So is the gospel social if by social you mean relational? Of course it is. Of course it is. That's good. That's good. Thank you for that, brother. I, I want to kind of, because uh, as, as we're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about our listeners, you know, whom we love. And, uh, and I'm thinking that there may be some listeners, and I'm sure you've had these conversations. I've heard comments along these lines. But, but what would you say or how would you respond maybe to, to someone who says, listen, Brian, you're enlarging this division. You're making, you're making a bigger deal out of all these racial issues. You just need to kind of get over it and, and move on. And let's just focus on what we have in common. How, how do you respond to those kind of reactions? Yeah, that's, that's always been the mainline reaction. In fact, for anybody who would say that, I'd encourage them to actually read uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, mm. um, which um, you can go online and read that. It, it, that's exactly why he wrote that letter in the spring of 1963. He wasn't writing it to the Bull Connors of the world. He wasn't writing it to you know the white supremacist terrorists known as the KKK. He was writing in response to an open letter that um, that 10 clergymen had penned in the local Birmingham newspaper saying the same thing. They were embarrassed by King and, the, and his lieutenants coming to town, and they said, hey, just take it easy. Things will run its course. You, you'll end up kind of where you're desiring, but you just need to wait. And King writes this. It's it's the prison epistle of the movement. He He just says, here's why we can't wait. So that posture is not a new posture. Uh, and I would say that systemic injustice and racism in America was the careful, well-thought-out, intentional plan um, that went on for several centuries in our nation's history. And if we're going to undo it, it it's not going to – you can't undo something intention, that was intentionally done by an organic means. It's going to take the same intentionality working in the opposite direction times a thousand. So because of the fall, I thread racism to sin, which is a part of the human heart. And you've got to attack these things. You've got to expose these things. You've got to talk about them. Um, and I should hope, I should hope that any person who would levy that indictment on me would be equitable in their critique and levy that same indictment on Donald Trump. Mm. That's that's a uh, that's a powerful word there, brother. 
something for people to really consider, really think through. Um, I think that this book, Insider Outsider, which has just been released that you've written, um, man, as I read through it, th- there are so many things that it just kind of shone a light on different things, you know, different ways of thinking and and how we approach. And it, I love that it's kind of narrative form, kind of tells your story, but it's but throughout it's it's sharing, you know, really encouraging us to to enter into these um, conversations and into listening to stories that aren't aren't like ours, you know what I mean? And, and how we can um, do life together as, as we're willing to make that space, as you said, that space to lament and that space to really listen and not get um, offended so easily, um, but actually just take the time. And, and that's one of those things that, that Christ encourages us to do with one another, right? That we're to spend our time with God and spend our time with one another. And um, so I just love that. And and one of the things as I read through this book, uh, I'll just be honest with you and honest with our listeners. One of the things I thought is a lot of the people that uh, I think would really benefit from reading this book, my concern is that they won't. You know what I mean? And, and so I think my big prayer um, after reading this in, in our conversation today, Brian, is that this book and and I'm you know I'm not getting a kickback from Brian or Zondervan or anyone else for saying this at all. I, I've got nothing in this except for the heart that I have for for our church, right? And um, I think this uh, my prayer for this book is that it will get into many people's hands, that they won't um, dismiss it, but that they will dig into it and that they'll reflect and that they'll be open um, before God as they kind of, uh, read through it. Cause it's super, it's super encouraging. And, and that's one thing I want people to understand, you know, Brian, you're not the kind of guy who's just trying to like heap guilt on people. And that's what I love about you, uh, but you're trying to encourage us to, to dig more deeply into the, the beauty, uh, that Christ calls us to live in. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. My friend. Well, uh, before we close down here, just how can pastors and ministry leaders, um, those who are listening today, how can they connect with you or dig more deeply really into to what we've talked about? I know we've said um, check out the book Insider Outsider from Zondervan, but if they want to connect, are there other ways they connect with you in, in, in your ministry, brother? Yeah, of course. I'm on social media. So uh, Facebook, I've got a public profile page. Just type in my name, uh, Brian with a Y, Loritz, L-O-R-I-T-T-S. Uh, I'm on Twitter, B.C. Loritz. I'm on Instagram, Loritz. Um, you know, I've got a personal website. They can just kind of Google my name and pull that up and just keep up with, uh, with what God's doing in my life. Awesome, brother. And we'll have all those links in our show notes. So if uh, you want to uh, uh, reach out, get in touch with, with Brian, connect with him, and uh, we'll have links to the book and uh, links um, to Dr. King Jr.'s letter as well so that you guys can, can read that. So, man, if there's Anything that you'd like to share, you know, as we close here, Brian, if there's, you know, anything that maybe we haven't touched on or, or something that you'd like to just emphasize, what is it you'd like to share with our listeners? Hey, I would just say I'm hopeful. You know, um, a staff member who happened to be white asked me some years ago, if I could live any time in world history, when would it be? And I said, as a black man, I said, now. <laughs> you know, mm. 1753 wasn't good for me. 1853 wasn't good. <laughs> um, so we are making progress. Um, and I believe that while we've made enormous legislative leaps, that the next step is the church has got to step in, and the people of God, armed with the Spirit of God, we have the cure 
for what truly ails us holistically, but especially in the area of race. And we need to start doing life with one another. So uh, I'm hopeful, and let's stay hopeful, and let's be people of love. Amen, brother. I love that. Thank you. What a great way to end our conversation today. Brian, thank you again for taking the time to be with us. We so appreciate you, your heart for the God, and heart for the kingdom. Thanks a lot, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.